Hello, everyone, and welcome to HR Works, the podcast for HR professionals. We really appreciate you taking time out of your busy day to join us. I am the host of HR Works, Jim Davis, and the editor of the HR Daily Advisor. This podcast aims to put valuable tools and knowledge into the hands and ears of you, the HR professional, and those tools will arm you with the best methods and strategies for attracting, motivating, and retaining top talent. This episode is a SHRM credit approved podcast episode. Stay tuned for information on how to get your credits later in the program. Sykes Enterprise found that 37% of U.S. adults do not plan on getting the vaccine, the COVID vaccine, when it's available. 20% of those who would not say that they will get it if their employers require it, leaving 80% of those who have no intention of getting the vaccine saying they won't get it if their employers require it. Um, 54% believe employers should require non-remote employees to be vaccinated. Uh, But another survey conducted found that 40% would consider leaving their organization if it required that they be vaccinated before returning to work. Now, there's a big difference between considering leaving an organization and actually leaving an organization. But, you know, even if half of those people uh, followed through with with what they're saying, that's still a considerable percentage of the workforce that is going to potentially put their foot down should employers mandate a vaccine. Um, I personally believe getting employees vaccinated against COVID-19 is a vital part of any return to the ordinary working operations in this country. It's not the only thing that needs to be done, but it's it's a, it's a big step. It's something we've all been waiting for, many of us have been waiting for, for a long time, and it really would make a big difference. So today I want to discuss this issue from three perspectives. We're going to look at employment laws surrounding mandating vaccines, medical considerations about the efficacy and safety of the vaccine, and the HR perspective of making employees comfortable and engaging with them surrounding the notion of getting the vaccine. So we're joined by three panelists today. The first is Whitney Brown, a shareholder with Lair Middlebrooks, Vreeland and Thompson, PC in Birmingham, Alabama. Whitney represents employers in a range of employment litigation, including harassment and discrimination cases, FMLA, and cases involving state law claims. We also have with us today Kimberly Cassidy, the Chief Talent Officer at Cornerstone On Demand. In this role, she works to ensure all corner stars realize their potential through the development of a unique culture that strengthens Cornerstone's core values and supports their employee life cycle to attract, develop, and retain our their global team. Finally, we also have with us Sri Chaguturu. He's a MD and Senior VP of CVS Health and Chief Medical Officer of CVS Caremark He focuses on enhancing the quality of services provided to millions of its members and patients while also contributing to the overall mission of CVS Health. Uh, Whitney, Kimberly, and Sri, thank you all so much for joining me today. Our pleasure. Thank you. Absolutely. I just want to get started right away. We've got a lot to go over. Uh, So let's start with you, Sri, just to provide our listeners with the backdrop. Um, Many of those that oppose vaccines in general uh, and the COVID vaccine specifically say they're concerned about the safety of the vaccine. I know in particular with the COVID vaccine, many are concerned with how quickly it was developed, um, but others just are generally leery around vaccines in general. So the question is, are the COVID-19 vaccines safe and, and what are the risks? Great question. Let's have some plain talk about, you know, the speed in terms of how these vaccines were created and then what the safety profiles look like. You know, in terms of the speed at which these vaccines were made, uh, it is historic in how quickly that we've gone from identification of the virus to understanding the genomic code and then developing the, these va- uh, vaccines that can help prevent serious uh, COVID-19 illness, hospitalizations and death. There was a lot of uh, advantages that we had. One is that there's been advances in scientific techniques in development of vaccines. Two, we were actually starting with um, a lot of knowledge around coronaviruses besides SARS-CoV-2, like Middle Eastern Respiratory uh, uh, Syndrome and uh, SARS-CoV-1. So new tech. We already started on a base of scientific knowledge, and then there was unprecedented concentration of scientific investigation during the pandemic to uh, create these vaccines. 
And then each of these vaccines have to undergo rigorous placebo-controlled, randomized control uh, clinical trials. And the FDA's expectation was that to submit for authorization, you needed to have a minimum of 30 to 60,000 individuals in these trials. There needed to be at least two months of safety data that were ca uh, captured. And then the manufacturers, the pharmaceutical companies, need to have their manufacturing process it, uh, uh, looked at as part of the authorization process. So large numbers of people uh, really following the safety data and ensuring the safety of the manufacturing process. So yes, they were created quickly, but they were still held to high rigorous uh, uh, expectations for authorization. When we actually look at the safety profiles of these vaccines, they look uh, very safe. There's two ways to think about it, the short-term safety effects and the long-term safety effects. Uh, on the short-term safety side effects, uh, what we see is largely what we would see with most other uh, vaccines uh, with uh, site injection pain, some soreness in the arm, a small percentage will have fevers and chills that generally will last for about a day to two days and then will uh, uh, dissipate. These are largely for the two that are authorized at the time that we're recording this. Uh, Pfizer and Moderna are two-dose vaccines, so we see a little bit more uh, of these events on the, after the second dose than the first dose. In a way, you can kind of think of these safety, uh, these side effects that you're uh, feeling are a lot of a signal that your immune system is doing its job in learning what uh, the SARS-CoV-2 virus looks like so that if you ever did get infected, your immune system can be called into action and reduce the likelihood that you would have uh, symptomatic COVID-19 disease. So the side effects uh, are manageable. Uh, no shortcuts were made in the creation of these vaccines as well. So. Hopefully that's helpful in understanding how we got to where we are and what we're seeing in the short-term side effects. My last comment on the long-term side effects is we don't know what the long-term side effects until we've had the vaccines around for a long time. But in general, when we look at vaccines overall, whether it's um, measles, mumps, rubella, diphtheria, or any of the other vaccines that you get, there are very rare cases of long-term side effects. Most of the side effects that we see are short-term. When we look at the types of vaccines that we've created, there's no real reason for us to believe that there will be long-term side effects of these COVID-19 vaccines. So I can't definitively tell you there are no long-term side effects, but there's no biologic reason for us to think that there will be long-term side effects from these vaccines as well. You know, thank you very much. Um, I have an, another question for you, which is, you know, at least here in the States, the rollout plan for these vaccines has been organized around need, you know, with elderly uh, individuals and frontline workers receiving some of the earliest available vaccinations. Do you have any idea when employers will even have the opportunity to start vaccinating their employees if they so choose? Great question, complicated answer. So let's work through this one. So um, the CDC has provided through the Advisory Committee for Immunization Practices a framework uh, nationally on how to prioritize who should be getting the vaccine. And we've been in this early phase of healthcare workers and long-term care residents and now moving into frontline essential workers, people over the age 75. And I won't walk through the rest of the framework, but essentially continues to move on uh, so that we can ensure that everyone is able to get vaccinated. And that framework was developed by using sort of three principles, who's getting infected, what's the implementation feasibility, and what's the equity and social justice to ensure that we have appropriate vaccinations of communities that have been hardest hit. Now, states can then adapt that framework. So the CDC's framework is guidance. The states can then take that framework and determine how best to deploy it. So there will be tweaks around the edges of how the framework will be used. So that's how populations are prioritized. That's one component of when employers can think about when they can be, you know, their employees can be vaccinated because it's about mapping up your colleagues against the state framework that's been informed by the federal government. The next piece is the actual access to vaccines. 
And the access to vaccines is also occurring in a couple of different uh, pathways. So the first is that uh, the federal government has purchased all of the vaccines and is distributing them through multiple channels. Uh, they're distributing it to federal agencies like the Department of Defense to make sure that our uh, colleagues in armed services are vaccinated or to the Indian Health Service. So there's a small portion that's through federal agencies. But then the next piece is distribution to the states. And that allocation occurs based largely on population. And then states can then reallocate the vaccines to their trusted vaccinators, hospitals, physician offices, pharmacies, public health, mass vaccination clinics. Then the next piece is the federal government can directly allocate to pharmacies. And uh, pharmacies have been directly allocated to provide vaccination services to long-term care facilities uh, and skilled nursing facilities where our most vulnerable members of society, the elderly living in congregate uh, uh, facilities can get vaccinated first. Uh, and then uh, in uh, the upcoming, in, in the near future, the federal government will announce the start of another program called the Federal Pharmacy Partnership, which would allow for the um, uh, broader access to vaccines across the country. So as an employer, you have to understand where do, you, where do your employees line up and then where is their access across all those channels and ensuring that there's um, an, uh, um, your employees are aware of where, when and where they can get vaccinated. So this is quite complex. Uh, apologies for taking the time to go through all of those details, but there is no one easy answer. It is about uh, close contact with state and uh, local health authorities and your trusted healthcare providers to know when is right for your employees. No, thank you very much. I, I think that's really helpful. You know, I know it's going to be a little while, but it's really important for HR and uh, employers to start thinking about how are they gonna how are they gonna get it um, when it comes time. So that's a that's very helpful. Uh, I want to change gears briefly to discuss the legal issues. Um, and, you know, and, and listeners, if you're curious, we do have episodes discussing specifically with Sri um, the advocacy of the of the vaccines and other concerns in a little bit more detail. I, I'll include a link to those in the description. Um, we also do have an episode or two discussing the legal concerns about mandating vaccines, but for the purposes of this discussion, I just want to make sure that we have the, we sort of have the ground floor taken care of. So Whitney, I was wondering if you could, uh, generally speaking, answer the <laughs> simple question, um, can employers even mandate vaccines for employees? Yeah, Jim, sure. Um, so Generally speaking, um, yes, employers can mandate vaccines for employees. Um, now, they have to make accommodations for employee disabilities or the sincerely held religious beliefs of employees. Um, and the EEOC has updated uh, its pandemic guidance um, to specifically address the COVID-19 vaccines um, where it has said that, uh, you know, it has affirmed that employers may mandate it subject to, again, those exceptions. Um, and also, you know, if it be voluntary or administered by a third party. But the COVID-19 vaccine, when it's administered, it comes, of course, with a series of questions. Um, but, it, let me back up. The reason vaccines are legal is because uh, legal for private employers to require is because they're not regarded as medical exams or disability related inquiries, which the ADA governs. Um, however, with the COVID-19 vaccine, uh, as those licensed providers are providing it, they are required to make uh, disability related inquiries. And so when the employer handles the job of vaccination directly, then they've turned the vaccination process into a medical exam or disability related inquiry, where they then have to meet the high standard uh, of showing that employees who, who can't answer this 
uh, can't answer these questions or refuse to answer these questions pose a direct threat to the health and safety of the workplace. Um, but what we think that most, uh, particularly non-healthcare employers, will be doing uh, is either making it voluntary and incentivized or required, but more a case of being required to prove that you've been vaccinated by a third party. Um, there is a countervailing opinion specific to the COVID-19 vaccine uh, mm. as well regarding it being uh, distributed subject to an emergency use authorization. Um, and this countervailing opinion says that because the, uh, the medical folks who administer uh, an EUA uh, emergency use authorization vaccine are required to make certain disclaimers to the recipients, including that they have the option to accept or refuse the vaccine. Um, and so I've seen some uh, scholars and lawyers suggest that, uh, that that would have application to, uh, you know, to a private employer uh, to limit a private employer's ability to make a consequence of vaccine refusal, uh, possibly the termination of employment. Um, I disagree with that with respect to private employers. Uh, the emergency youth use authorization guidance uh, and the requirement to use this language was not intended to limit private employers' right to govern their own workplaces. Um, you know, and the EEOC guidance uh, clearly indicates that they don't find the EUA status of the vaccine problematic, and they are the ones that are supposed to be issuing guidance uh, on on private workplaces. Uh, you know, there are some other sort of more constitutional type reasons why, uh, why again, I believe that um, that that the COVID nineteen vaccine can be mandated despite its EUA status by private employers. And you know, now public employers, I think that's a different ball of wax. I think the EUA authors uh, status becomes very important then. Uh, because that FDA regulation applies to, I believe, what the government's authority is. Um, so those of you listening uh, who are HR for public employers, I, I, you know, you need to be paying very close attention to this, uh, how that EUA affects you and consulting with your counsel on that. Yeah, yeah, thank you. Um, you know, if by and large, most employers can mandate uh, the vaccine and decide to, let's say employer decides to, uh, what else should they be on the lookout for employment law wise? Sure. Well, I mean, the number one thing is handling the accommodation request. You know, do you have, does the employer have in-house, you know, whether that be at a variety of locations or adequate staff in a central corporate office to deal with the number of vaccination uh, of exemption requests that they're going to get. And I know I'm preaching to the choir with this HR audience here, but, you know, we know they're not going to be neat requests for exemption that are clearly religiously based, for example, or clearly based on a disability, like an allergic reaction to a to an ingredient that's actually used in the vaccine. You know, instead, we're going to get a mis mishmash of personal liberty arguments, maybe one citation to scripture, um, <laughs> you know, a citation to a night of prayer or meditation, and an unnamed and refusing to be disclosed disability um you know, called a medical condition. And, you know, are you prepared to run down, depending on your workforce, you know, dozens of those, hundreds of those? Uh, you know, Jim opened with some statistics, and that's consistent with what I've seen, and it's consistent with what actually happens um, in the flu vaccine program. Mm. So on the 2019-2020 um, flu data, working age adults, 18 to 64 years old, 
only 42% of them choose um, or, or get this vaccination. Obviously, some of them that work in healthcare or childcare may be required to get it. But, you know, with a, to me, that's the most similar vaccine. It doesn't last a lifetime. Um, you know, it protects against a major respiratory issue, although I, I don't want to say that these are the same. COVID-19 is obviously much, much more serious. Right. Um, but I think that we should only expect similar vaccination rates. And if we're having over half the population, you know, with widespread access to an easy to get vaccine that most people can get at zero cost through their employer or at their pharmacy, um, you know, that's pretty dang disheartening. It is. And it raises kind of a, a certain tragedy. You know, we, we have all this information about how flu, va- flu vaccines work uh, when it comes to mandating them in the, in the office or, or at work, you know, and in that case, the flu is deadly, but it's not as deadly as COVID. And it's kind of like something we all just lived with, accepting that maybe we'll get the flu, but probably not. Um, and if we do, there's a small percent chance that we die, uh, which apparently before COVID-19 was acceptable. I always got my vaccine, but, you know, I when, when my coworkers were like, oh, I'm not going to get the flu vaccine, I, you know, I wasn't going to, it wasn't the same. It's, it's different now because COVID's so much deadlier and employers have to find this way, this option um, in their, in their heads is, is it worth the effort of alienating employees and, and having to run down all that authorization, you know, except exemption paperwork and, and just dealing with, you know, depending on what kind of employer are other rules that are upcoming against protecting their employees uh, with the vaccine. And it's a very hard question because if the answer is, I don't want to do all that work and, and contain all that risk, the the problem is that a, a bunch of people might die. Um, so I'm going to take this super complicated uh, issue and dump it on you, Kim. Um, <laughs> when, if ever, should employers mandate vaccines and when shouldn't they? Yeah. Uh, thanks for having me on, Jim, and, and giving me this tough one. Look, <laughs> you're most welcome. <laughs> I'll, I'll set the stage that this is a complicated, complicated topic. And for most of us in the HR profession and and uh, legal profession, this is uncharted territory. And because of that, it's so important that we as HR leaders, as business leaders, don't rush through the, the, the decision. We need to be strategic and deliberate in how we navigate this. Now, it's critical that companies maintain really a current understanding of the regulatory requirements in the local jurisdictions in which their employees operate. Uh, oftentimes we can think through just where our headquarters is, where decisions are being made about the regulations related to that home base, but we need to think more broadly, especially if you are a multinational company. And keep in mind that at some point, based on any given country, a government may require uh, and take the decision out of, require a vaccine, take the decision out of the employer's hands. But until then, and, and as it remains an option for most, to mandate or not mandate, in my opinion, should really be based on our ability to safeguard the health of our employees and their families, our customers and visitors, and the community at large. Now, I don't believe that safeguard means mandate necessarily. For example, if your business is lucky enough to not require on-site attendance and your employees are just as productive at home as they were before COVID-19, and they can remain that productive um, through a safer at home initiative until maybe herd immunity is accomplished or until our healthcare systems are more equipped uh, to manage through people that have contracted the virus, then a mandate may not be for you. If you don't require, or I'm sorry, if you do require on-site attendance to be successful, but you still have really good health uh, practices in place and adherence to those practices, such as wearing a mask at all times, social distancing, and other good hygiene like um, 
using hand sanitizer, then a mandate may not be right for you. To, to what Whitney was discussing earlier about people, people having strong opinions on the matter, we have people who insist they be vaccinated before they return and others who refuse to get the vaccine. So one thing's for sure, which is whether we mandate or don't mandate, we clearly need to educate our leaders and our employees on how to handle these differing views and really reiterate a zero tolerance policy against any harassment that includes these topics as well, which we typically don't think of. And we know we'll be faced with employees who who have strong opinions toward another, uh, and we want to safeguard against harassment and retaliation for people who either are accepting and wanting a vaccine and those who are declining a vaccine based on their peers' views, so to speak. Other, uh, other potential key decisions employers really need to make on this is uh, time off, whether or not it will be paid, and that eventually may be requirement. Uh, and do you incentivize people to get the vaccine, which Whitney may also have an opinion on because I've, I've been doing some reading that, that this also may be potentially discriminatory for those who have a disability or religious accommodation to not offer that same equality, so to speak. Yeah, I'd love to uh, jump in on that. So the EEOC, you know, has proposed new wellness rules filling a void that's been uh, present for almost uh, five years now. Um, And the, you know, the bottom line for purposes of this discussion of those new wellness rules are those rules govern incentives for employer health programs. So assuming a voluntary voluntary vaccination program, uh, you know, meets those qualifications as an employer health plan, then as a, uh, for this type of employer health plan where it's just, you know, up or down, did you participate or not? Um, the EEOC is the draft guidance that's been uh, published says that, you know, that, that the incentive can only be de minimis in value. And they haven't given a hard line on what it is, on what de minimis means in this context. You know, we know they have said a couple of things. It doesn't mean it doesn't mean uh, something as big as an airline ticket. It doesn't mean uh, basically a six hundred dollar credit towards one's uh, health deductible at fifty bucks a month. Um, and on the other side, they've said a water bottle or a gift card. Again, for that de minimis value is is acceptable. Um, so I think a lot of employers are going to be looking in between the twenty five and fifty dollar gift card range uh, on that topic. And then also the ADA says that, uh, you know, employee benefits and all the, all terms of employment uh, have to be offered without discrimination and, and with accommodation. And so you're also going to have to, if you have this program and if you have someone who can't get the vaccine because of a bona fide disability, then, you know, you have to have sort of a backstop certification process um, whereby they can receive the reward as a participant, um, you know, upon their reason for non-participation being certified. And possibly also, you know, if if there's not already a mask mandate, um, you know, you may want to require them to participate in what you require of all declining vaccine declining employees, you know, be that mask wearing PPE wearing, uh, working from home, what, whatever is working for your workforce and the particular jobs involved. Mm-hmm. I can do, I'm just picturing the conversation as, um, a number of people that, you know, probably don't have a reason to not get the vaccine, but, then see people are getting rewards for getting the vaccine and saying, well, I want the reward, even though I'm not going to get the vaccine. (laughs) It's just, it's just times like this that I'm glad that I don't have to, I don't have to do these things. Um, (laughs) It just sounds like such a complicated conversation. 
it, it, it is, it has been, and it will continue to be. I had another one uh, for you, Kim, which is, uh, you know, you mentioned the importance of, of educating managers, employees, and, and leaders. Uh, what's your approach, not necessarily at your organization, but what's your advice for an approach towards communicating work-related vaccinations to employees? Through, look, throughout the pandemic, since it started, uh, education and communication has been our top priority and has really been uh, the activity we probably can't do enough of. So the more we educate and the more we train, including vaccinations and education, uh, the, the, the more we see our employees feeling comfort. Uh, more than ever, People are looking to their leaders, their business leaders, their mentors for this specific guidance. So you don't have to necessarily have a specific opinion to get a mandate or not get a mandate, but to provide people to, to cut through the noise out there and give them credible resources that they can go to, even if it's through your own health insurance uh, newsletters to give them information that they can lean on a credible source. So regular communication from your HR and your leadership teams can really help folks feel supported. And I was reading a recent survey from Gartner of HR professionals specifically, and 60%, the survey said 60% do not plan to require the vaccination, but do plan to encourage the vaccination through education and really facilitation by getting them the information on when, where, how that intersects with their healthcare plans, if they have healthcare plans, and what they plan to do in terms of time off, which I mentioned earlier. This is really a great opportunity to encourage that two-way communication, not just providing the information, but also holding feedback sessions or even pulse surveys on how people are feeling in general. Now, I would offer a word of caution about asking people in a survey whether or not they want to be vaccinated. Because uh, if you don't plan to follow through with those results, say, say that you plan to mandate a vaccine, but the results overwhelmingly show that people don't want that can backfire on you. So, so be prepared. If you do ask and the results don't fit your plan, you'll, you'll really need to lean into explaining the why behind. I want to jump in in a little while talking about uh, retaliation concerns. Um, but before then, it occurs to me that uh, there's another issue that maybe we didn't discuss about the vaccine itself, which is the fact that these are two shot vaccines. I know that the um, the first shot comes with uh, a certain percentage of protection that's significantly lower than when you get both shots. So um, somewhat briefly, Sri, I was wondering if you could help us understand when employers start handing out vaccinations for those that do. Um, should they wait until there's enough available for them to give both shots or is there a merit towards getting that first wave out as soon as possible? It's a good question and one that uh, the federal government is working through in their allocation schema that we talked about at the top of the podcast. So um, it, it is important to recognize that the high efficacy rates that we see from the trial data for authorization were from two doses, and that was seven to 14 days after the second dose. So it is incredi incredibly important to get both doses. And vaccinators, trusted vaccinators, uh, hospitals, physicians, office pharmacies, they are scheduling you for your first and second dose to ensure that you complete the series just like you would complete any other series of vaccines like Shingrix for uh, shingles, which requires multiple doses. So uh, their uh, allocate the, the scheduling, the ordering, the allocation is all predicated on uh, the ability to have access for the first and second dose for, at an individual level. There's a lot of complexity to how the actual systems work, but um, I don't think we need to get too caught up in like exactly how that's working. 
what matters is that when we educate our colleagues, that it's important to get both doses to get the full efficacy of the um, uh, vaccines. And if you'll um, indulge me for a moment, I just wanted to share some additional information on on vaccine hesitancy. Sure. Uh, uh, we've conducted a survey at CVS Health and have uh, uh, then followed up um, two months later. So we, uh, at, in early December, uh, we uh, asked uh, individuals across the country, 5,000 plus individuals mirroring the demographics of America, what was their likelihood of getting the vaccine? And what we saw is that there was about 28% who were raising their hands saying, I'm first in line, 17% that said, no, no interest. Um, and then we had uh, 55% that were what I would call the movable middle. Uh, and that 55% said, I want to wait, or I'm just not sure. We then reconducted that survey uh, earlier in January. And what we found is that there's greater polarization. So there are more people who want to get the vaccine, 38% compared to 28%. Uh, but there are more people who are saying they don't want to get the vaccine, 24% versus 17. So the movable middle is getting smaller. But then the question is, that movable middle is our colleagues, um, uh, our employees. And when you ask them, well, what would help you make your decision? They talk about education, as we've talked about, you know, throughout the last half hour. Education is critically important, and it's education from trusted clinicians uh, that they know. So medical directors, uh, chief medical officers, uh, uh, chief nurses, their, um, you know, your health benefits partners uh, and pharmacy benefit partners. These are the trusted health sources that you want to amplify with your colleagues in terms of helping them understand what are the vaccines about and, uh, you know, from a safety and efficacy and access standpoint. Um, so uh, thanks for letting me talk a little bit further about vaccine hesitancy. Uh, but the key piece here is amplifying messages from clinicians is important um, in helping to address that movable middles concerns. Yeah, that's really interesting. I wonder what, um, to what degree HR experts are uh, in a position to coordinate with, you know, with all those groups of people uh, to educate their employees. Uh, Kim, do you have any sense of, of how achievable that is? I, I think it's a great opportunity for HR leaders to lean in here specifically. And in terms of coordination, uh, most will have uh, healthcare plans that they can lean in there, you know, the Blue Cross, Blue Shields, the Aetnas and alike that can help them or even their broker help them navigate resources that are already available and out there, uh, whether it's publications that they can share through their company intranet site and or arranging WebExes through uh, clinicians that are part of their plans. To, to share information and to provide Q&A. Um, those are things that can easily be coordinated through those programs specifically. And I would encourage HR practitioners to lean into their brokers and to their plan providers uh, to come up with solutions for them. One of the things that uh, you know, I said I wanted to talk about, it's uh, the, the mask phenomena um, has been a good, I think a good example of what the vaccine phenomena will look like. You know, uh, it just seemed in the beginning, once they, you know, people started officially saying that the masks were actually helping, like a no brainer. Okay, you know, it's what does it cost you to wear a mask? You know, people, I have asthma, I can wear as many masks as I want at once, I can breathe fine. Um, People, you know, with COPD are, are wearing masks. You got nurses wearing them all day. And, and it, you know, it's just basically from, from every reasonable standpoint, they're perfectly safe to use and, and effective at helping spreading the infection. And, and yet you saw some organizations, you saw sort of like two kinds of signs get thrown up in, in storefront windows. 
uh, you saw no mask, no service in a lot of places. And then in some places you saw, if you wear a mask, we won't serve you signs. Um, you know, and it's so easy as someone that's on uh, one side of that to sort of make the assumption that all my listeners are of the same the same viewpoint. But, you know, obviously that can't possibly be true. So you're going to have other than organizations out there that are going to say, you know, here's your incentive or, or here's your mandate for wearing a mask. I wonder what the likelihood is, is that there's going to be organizations out there that say, uh, sorry, that they're going to say, like, you're, you're mandated to have a, a vaccine or, or here's your incentive to get a vaccine. There's going to be organizations out there that might say, don't get a vaccine. Is anyone preparing for that or heard anything about that yet? Organizations that don't plan? Right. Organizations that will incentivize you not to get a vaccine. Ooh. I mean, I know it's kind of crazy <laughs> sounding, but it's not that crazy when you think about what's happened over the last number of years. Yep. Um, in that same survey, when I go back and look at uh, those results from Gartner, it was a really, really low percentage that essentially single digits that said they plan to do nothing. Uh, I think most are leaning into a mandate or education from uh, the peer groups that I've talked to and or from the surveys that I've seen. So uh, I think it more leans in as, in terms of do nothing as opposed to incentivize not to. That's a relief, uh, a big <laughs> one. Um, you know, I know that these things have a way of just sort of becoming bigger than they are. Like, I don't, I didn't see any signs saying if you wear a mask, um, you can't come in here. <laughs> uh, but I did see, you know, people in online communities posting things like that. Um, and it just occurs to me that, you know, there's going to be a counter movement. I, I, you know, I'm curious if there's... One of the things I've been following over the last year is wrongful death lawsuits because of coronavirus. And this is one of those issues that I thought was going to be bigger than it was. There have been a couple of cases where families of dead employees have claimed that employers didn't protect them from the coronavirus. Um, there was a particularly famous one. I think it was in New Jersey at a chicken, uh, chicken packing plant. I, I was seeing that as is there a concern that if you don't mandate vaccines or incentivize vaccines, that that could later on come to bite you uh, as a way of saying you weren't taking it serious and, and therefore were leading to more wrongful deaths at your organization? Yeah, so I just don't see that as a realistic possibility. Um, it varies by state, but in general, um it's called the workers comp exclusivity bar. Um, and it bars all sorts of, uh, private torts like a wrongful death suit, um, uh, bars employees from bringing those against their employers and, and limits them to, uh, to the workers comp system. And then you have, you know, as long as COVID-19 is in a status of community spread, uh, you have a very difficult proof problem of establishing uh, that someone got their particular case from the workplace. Um, so you kind of, uh, you, you just don't really have a playing field to play on um, in most states. If you could get around the exclusivity bar, you're not going to be able to prove uh causation um and, right. and once you prove causation you're back under the exclusivity bar where plaintiff's attorneys don't want to be because that's not where the big dollars are Jim, I think, um, on a related topic to that uh and i'm curious either your or whitney's and tree's opinion here uh we've seen at least locally here in los angeles where some cities are mandating that for example grocery store workers receive hazard pay in coronavirus times. And we, we have seen some chains actually close stores in counties that are requiring it as a result. And so maybe similar to what Whitney is um, talking about here, where the government is trying to step in and enforce some regulations around hazard pay, um, but, but business uh, obviously refuting that. 
by closing stores. Whitney, anything, any follow-up there? Well, I, I had not seen uh, any stories on on localities doing that. That's, uh, you know, that, that's certainly very interesting uh, exercise of powers that I'm not surprised to see uh, companies close down. Uh, you know, obviously my practice is uh, physically based in Alabama and have a lot of uh, clients here in Alabama as well as throughout the country. And um, but a, a lot of those retail establishments were uh, were very early on uh, coming up with pay, uh, with, with additional pay to try to keep people employed and make it worthwhile to show up. What are we missing? What, uh, what are we not talking about here, if anything? I think um, from, from an employer perspective, a lot are leaning into the idea that come the fall, this is going to be a non-issue, so can we wait it out? And then you also hear mm. uh, that this is going to be a regular need to get a vaccine going forward that we need to integrate into our lives. So I wonder what Shree's perspective is on that as, as the expert in helping guide employers about what their future planning should be not outside of even 2021. Yeah, it's a great question in terms of uh, what does uh, beyond, um, let's look to the winter time of 2021 uh, and then what does 22 and beyond look like? And the reason I talk about winter 2021 is that we're going to have a hybrid society where we're going to have individuals who've been vaccinated and those who have not been vaccinated will still have low uh, levels of circulating uh, COVID likely in the community in pockets. And therefore, there will continue to be sporadic outbreaks and hopefully nothing like what we're seeing now. However, uh, it will take us a couple of years for us to get to a point where we wouldn't have these sort of seasonal outbreaks. But there's an increasing thought that seasonal outbreaks will uh, occur. So all of the HR considerations that we've talked about over the last year pre-vaccine will continue to be an issue uh, uh, throughout 21. And then as there's increased vaccine availability, uh, and we continue to track people over longer periods of time, you know, one of the questions is how long does the vaccine last for? What's the uh, length of immunity or efficacy? We won't know till we know, which is, uh, you know, sort of a silly thing to say, but it just takes time <laughs> for us to gather the data and understand, is this a one-year or two-year uh, or something different in terms of length of immunity and do you need boosters or do you need to redo the series? But for all intents and purposes, what it looks like is that this is going to be uh, an annual vaccine. <clears throat> Some of these variants uh, that we're seeing circulating now look to require a, a booster a little bit earlier than it, what we would see with the wild type virus. So two ways to answer the question, um, you know, infection rates, as well as how often will you need the vaccine? Um, and so our conversations that we've had in previous podcasts, as well as today, will continue to be pertinent moving forward. And kind of building on the subject of those uh, different variants that we're seeing uh, in other locations, you know, this is something... Um, Travel restrictions is something that we got a lot of questions on in March and April, um, and so it may bear refreshing for those employers that didn't uh, deal with that aspect at the time um, or have uh, so much has gone on in, in the past year that, that uh, you know, they're looking at reviewing that again. Um, of course, you should consult with your local council, but in general, you can certainly impose, uh, you know, travel restrictions, travel reporting requirements, um, you know, uh, restricting employees to work from home uh, if they've traveled to a place where these variants are uh, are known to have occurred, um, or telling them, you know, that they have to use their leave or perhaps that they won't be granted leave. Um, all those are, again, you always want to discuss with your, your local council, any local oddities that may be in play um, 
but but I see that often as a companion to we're going to encourage vaccines, but assuming we won't get a critical mass, you know, in our workplace, in our community, what can we do to further keep people safe? Um, you know, obviously the, the original uh, COVID-19, if Shri will forgive probably the terrible medical inaccuracy of that, um, you know, is widespread everywhere, but we do have new variants, um, you know, that might justify uh, restrictions to travel to those locations or restricting employees from reporting back to work following travel to those locations. I guess the question is, will will we ever feel safe again? And how can em, how can employers communicate that? We will feel safe again. It will take time. Uh, you know, we have to continue to uh, educate around the safety and efficacy of the vaccines, encourage uh, vaccinations, uh, and continue with hand washing, social distancing, and masking as standard uh, um, protections for the workplace and for home. Uh, But the resiliency for uh, uh, us as humans is uh, limitless. We will get to the other side of this pandemic. It will take time. It will take our collective actions. But, uh, you know, I am ex- um, looking forward to a, uh, a better tomorrow. Uh, these vaccines really give me a lot of hope. Thank you, Sri. And thank you, all of you, uh, Whitney and Kim, for joining me today. Thanks, Jim. Thanks, Whitney and Sri. Oh, thank you all. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Absolutely. My pleasure as well. Remember, listeners, this is a SHRM credit approved podcast. All you have to do is go to hrdailyadvisor.blr.com forward slash SHRM code. That's S-H-R-M-C-O-D-E and enter the code vaccine and you will get your SHRM credit code for listening to this. Finally, we are always interested in suggestions you might have for what HR work should cover next. So please feel free to reach out to us on Twitter at HRWorksPodcast with any thoughts or concerns that you have about the podcast in general, or if you just want to say hi, thank you very much. This is Jim Davis with HR Works.